You know, most kingdoms will do anything to protect their king. During World War II, as Allied forces prepared to invade Normandy on D-Day, Winston Churchill insisted on leading the British troops from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. Dwight Eisenhower, who was actually commanding the D-Day operation, denied the request because the danger was too strong that Churchill could be killed. And so he said, absolutely not. Churchill shot back and told Eisenhower that he did not have the authority to prevent the prime minister from from, uh, doing what he wanted to do. And so there they were at an impasse. Eisenhower said he couldn't. Churchill said that he could and that he would. But the king of England heard about the prime minister's decision, and without interfering or overruling Churchill's authority, King George told him that if it was the prime minister's duty to accompany the landing force, it was the king's duty too. At that point, Churchill backed down because he would not risk the king's life like that. The danger was real. The danger was there. He would not risk the king's life. I'm not a very good chess player. I know how to play. I know how all the pieces move. But like I said, I'm not a very good chess player. One thing I know, though, is that when the king is lost, when the king's in checkmate, when the king's lost, it's game over. Jesus is our king. And unlike earthly kings, he paid the ultimate king's ransom by giving his life for ours. He assumed the guilt for all the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. And in so doing, purchased our salvation, purchased our freedom with his death. That is the greatest, clearest, most definitive example of sacrifice that has ever been or ever will be. We're talking today about the the sacrifice of the suffering servant the sacrifice of the suffering servant. We're continuing our sermon series through Isaiah 53, entitled By His Stripes. Isaiah 53 is where we're looking today. It is a remarkably accurate description of the suffering that Messiah would endure and experience on our behalf 700 years before the fact. If you haven't already found your way to Isaiah 53, go ahead and do that. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9, as we give our attention this morning for the next few minutes to the sacrifice of the suffering servant. This is the fourth of five messages from this chapter. Isaiah 53 is a song. It's called the Song of the Suffering Servant. It's a song with five stanzas, and each stanza has three verses. Thus far, we've looked at the suffering servant's success, his sorrow, his substitution. Next week, we'll finish the song by exploring the salvation Messiah would bring. But today, we're talking about the suffering, excuse me, the sacrifice of the suffering servant. We're beginning to read in verse 7. Join me there if you will. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet we did not, excuse me, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression 
and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You may remember that when Philip, the deacon evangelist, met the Ethiopian eunuch on the desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza, Acts chapter 8, you may remember that the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, was reading from this stanza of the Song of the Suffering Servant. It's this passage that he was reading and that he asked Philip, the deacon evangelist, about. He said, who is this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And we're told that Philip, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. A verse 700 years, written 700 years before, he preached Jesus to him. He said, this is talking about Jesus. Is this talking about the prophet or someone else? Philip says, I'll tell you who that Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about Jesus. Make no mistake about it. There's no doubt. There's no debate. These verses, Isaiah 53, these verses pointing to a suffering servant, these verses pointing to the coming Messiah, these verses are describing the sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross, 700 years before Jesus was even born. We learned last week that Jesus died in our place as our substitute. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse eight of today's text says that he was punished. He was put to death. He was struck down for the sins of the people. He's our substitute. But today we're talking about his sacrifice. And there are two amazing details in this stanza that further prove that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies. I want you to notice first that when Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, he, he, he describes the suffering servant as being silent. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Remember, he's speaking as if it's past tense because of the certainty of the prophecy. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The prophetic perfect is a, it's a usage in ancient uh, Hebrew, uh, unlike modern Hebrew. But it's, it's, it appears to be past tense, but it, is, it appears to be past tense in that it is so certain that it was written as if the action had already been completed. And so he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to, to, to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearer. So he did not open his mouth. Isaiah prophesied that Messiah would be silent before his accusers. Even in the face of certain death, he would not open his mouth to defend himself. This is a prophecy that Isaiah gave all these centuries before. And centuries later, that's exactly what happened. 
Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. And Jesus had spent three years speaking publicly and privately as Messiah. But after he was arrested by cowards and rushed through an illegal kangaroo court in the middle of the night, he was largely silent. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that he never spoke a word during his trial. He did. He just never moved into self-defense mode in the face of false witnesses. That, that's where you find him silent. False witnesses making false accusations. And Jesus simply did not defend himself. Matthew 26, Jesus was put before the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. And when pressed to defend himself against accusations, verse 63 says, but Jesus kept silent. Mark 14, 61 describes the same situation and says, but he kept silent and did not answer. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 12, we read, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Mark 15, 5, once again, describing the same situation. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. John 19, 9, Jesus gave Pilate no answer. Luke 23, 9, finds Jesus before Herod. And the king was questioning Jesus but he answered him nothing. Jesus was silent before his accusers. But why is that? What significance is there in the silence of Jesus? Why does it matter? Why, why would he remain silent? This is his opportunity to to say what he wants to say. Why would he be quiet at a time like this? Why did Jesus refuse to defend himself? I mean, silence in, in the face of accusations would not be my strong suit, and I don't think that it would be yours. But Jesus was oppressed and afflicted. Just as Isaiah prophesied, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Why? Let me offer three reasons. One, he had already said what he needed to say. He had, he had spent three years teaching publicly, privately. He had already said what he needed to say. Do you remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? We call it the high priestly prayer. Among other things, Jesus prayed, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. And so Jesus, in his prayer, said, you gave me words. I gave those words away. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And so he had already said what he needed to say. Perhaps that's why he was silent. Or two, and this is related but not the same, Jesus knew that the men in that gathering were not interested in truth. Their minds were made up, their agendas were fixed, and nothing, Jesus said, was going to change their minds. Nothing was going to change the situation. They had murder on their minds, and they would not be satisfied until Jesus was dead. And Jesus knew this. 
Jesus knew that nothing he said was going to change their minds. Or three, and three, and or three, and this is the biggie. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. First Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He could have aborted the mission anytime he wanted to. He could have called down thousands of angels to rescue him and to execute his vengeance against all those who had harmed him, but he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He knew what his mission was. He knew why he had come. He knew what his purpose was, and he knew there was no other way for people to be saved. And so Jesus assumed the posture and the position of the guilty even before he was nailed to the cross. Had he been able to argue himself out of the crucifixion? Just think about this. Had he been able to argue his way out of the, and, and, and let's face it, Jesus could have overwhelmed them with deep cosmic wisdom. I mean, he could have because he's God. But had he argued himself out of the crucifixion, no one, listen to me, no one from Adam forward would ever go to heaven. We would all be condemned to a sinner's hell. Every single one of us, from Adam forward, we would all go to hell. Jesus knew there was no other way. And so he remained silent. He did not defend himself in the face of these accusations or in the face of certain death. He remained silent. I know I said I had three reasons, but let me give you one more. Jesus' silence spoke volumes about his willingness to die for sins he did not commit. I know we say that the Jewish and Roman leaders killed Jesus, and in a sense they did. But in reality, no one took Jesus' life. He gave his life. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. The silence of Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Now some might say, yeah, but, you know, Jesus could have read that verse and then just kind of ordered his actions according to that verse. You know, he could have, he could have done that because of what those verses said. Um, perhaps. But there's a second fulfillment of prophecy over which Jesus, if he were a mere mortal man, if he were a con artist, if he were just, you know, duping people with, with some kind of hoax. If that were true, then there's a second fulfillment of prophecy over which he would have had absolutely no control because he would have been dead. Get this. Look, look again at verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. In other words, they crucified Jesus with criminals and they intended that his body would be discarded as uh, like, like trash as any common criminal's body would be discarded. It would be just left there for animals, scavenger animals, or it would have been thrown out on some kind of uh, pile of bones. I mean, it, it, it would not have been treated with honor. It would have received a dishonorable burial, if burial at all. 
His grave was a sign with wicked men. That was what was expected. That was what was intended. His grave was a sign with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Remember, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote down these words. I don't think Isaiah could possibly have known the, the significance of these words, just how big these words were. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. What are you talking about? Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60 tell us that after Jesus died, get this. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. We call him Joseph of Arimathea who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. John tells us he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, but who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. <laughs> Did I mention that Isaiah prophesied these words 700 years before Jesus was even born? This suffering sacrifice, this suffering servant, Messiah, would be with a rich man in his death. He would suffer like a criminal, expect to have a dishonorable burial like a criminal, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Jesus could have had no control over that if he were a con man. He was dead. And yet, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled exactly as Isaiah said that it would be. Sometimes when I'm preparing a sermon, I think in terms of what, so what, and now what. The what of this sermon today is that Isaiah prophesied that God would send a deliverer who would offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. That's the what. The so what of this sermon is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, Jesus is that sacrifice. We know that in part because he perfectly fulfilled the prophecies about his silence and about his burial. He is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Okay, so now what? We know the what, we've got the so what, now what? Understand this, Jesus was the only completely, perfectly righteous man to ever live. But we killed him. You say, I wasn't even there. Oh, but you were. Your sins contributed to his death just like my sins contributed to his death. We killed him. His righteousness was so offensive to our sin that we killed him. But at the cross, God performed a miracle that I don't completely understand. I have no doubt that he did it, though. When Jesus was on the cross, he took upon himself all the sins of all humanity. As I mentioned earlier, 
the sins of the past, the sins of the future, as well as those sins of his present. He took all the sins of all humanity upon himself as if they were his own. In other words, he paid the price for the guilt of those sins. He bore the punishment. The wages of sin is death. He bore the wages of sin as if those sins were his very own. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus instead of us. And the sacrifice Jesus offered for sin, the sacrifice of his own flesh and blood was pure and spotless. It was perfect in every way. And so it was completely sufficient to satisfy the holiness of God. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Our very best on our very best day will never be enough. And if we had a thousand lifetimes and we could take the cumulative good of a thousand lifetimes, still it would not be enough. And so the now what is to surrender to Jesus as your king. Remember, instead of asking us to go die to prove our love for him, he died in our place to prove his love for us. And so the now what is why not trust him today? If you don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, why not today give your heart to him? What more must he do to prove himself to you? Why don't you give your heart to him today? If you're already a follower of Christ, maybe today can be a fresh start. Maybe today can be a revival of sorts. Maybe today you can fall in love with Jesus all over again. I don't know how God might be speaking to your heart, but I have no doubt that he is speaking to hearts. Maybe your heart is one of those hearts. And today I want to invite you to respond to what God is saying to you. I'm about to pray, and when I say amen, we'll, we'll have an invitation. And during that invitation, I'm asking you to respond. Now, how can you do that? Well, um, to my right, to your left, pastors will be standing under the Where Lives Connect wall, and you can go talk to a pastor. If you want to trust Christ as your Savior, they'll be there to talk to you. Or if today you want to rededicate your life to the Lord, they'll be there to talk with you. You want to join the church, they'll be there to talk with you. You want somebody to pray with you, they'll be happy to pray with you. Our Celebrate Recovery team is, is there as well, and they can help uh, you not just make a decision today, but make a decision that helps you to keep making the same decision in the days to come to overcome certain habits or hiccups that may be keeping you from being all that you want to be in the Lord. I'm asking you today to move. I'm asking you today to respond to what Jesus is saying to you. Now, if you are not comfortable yet talking to a live person, uh, talking in person, maybe moving from your seat across the room, you can respond electronically. Those who are watching online, obviously, will have to do that, or those who are watching on television will have to do that. The information is on the screen, how that you can go to our info hub, yourhbc.info, or you can send us a text message, and we will receive your, we'll receive your message immediately. We'll respond to you quickly. But whether you respond in person by physically moving across the room or you respond electronically, do that today. I'm going to pray when I say amen, you move. Gracious Father, thank you again 
for your word. Thank you, Lord, for how specific and precise that it is. And Lord, thank you that it is alive and it is touching our hearts and convicting our hearts. Your Holy Spirit is massaging your word into our souls, and I thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those who need to move today, those who need to be saved. Lord, I pray for those who need to rededicate their lives to you. Lord, I pray for those that you're doing a work in their hearts on some other front. Lord, I just pray that today we would be upfront and honest with you, that, Lord, we would give you our very best. We would give you our very all. And, Lord, may you be glorified. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Why don't you take this chance today to move? Why don't you do today whatever it is that God is telling you to do? You come. You come.